Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you today from the Redbeard Studio on unceded Algonquin and Anishinaabe territory, also called Ottawa, Canada. This is episode 26, which is going to be released on the 8th of May, 2023, one day before the anniversary of Victory in Europe Day in the Second World War, called in Russia today uh, Victory Day in the Great Patriotic War. And that's kind of significant given what's going on in May 2023. Now, I mention that because since the beginning of this podcast, I've tried to describe the progress of the war in the Eastern Front of World War II chronologically, not just focusing on one area at a time, but trying to give you a broader picture of the development of the war, uh, mentioning while I'm focusing on the Eastern Front, what's going on in other theaters of war like North Africa, Western Europe, the Pacific, and so on. And I've tried to track the development of, of the war, talking about the Battle of Smolensk in the summer of 2022, talking about Operation Typhoon, which took place in the fall of 1941, 81 years later in the fall of 2022. So here we are in May 2023, and I'm going to talk about something that was going on 81 years ago. That is the spring of 1942, which means I'm going to be talking about Fall Blau. That's German for Case Blue or Operation Blue. So after um, Germany went to on to the defensive posture, having stalled uh, in Eastern Europe in December of 1941. Then there were a number of Soviet counterattacks that drove them back from the steppes of Moscow through the winter of 1942. And you can see that in map one. And that was all covered in previous episodes. So if you don't remember or you didn't listen to those, um, you can go back and listen to them uh, on every podcasting platform there is. I'll wait. Anyway, just to sum up, um, after that, so here we are in the spring of 1942. Stavka, the Soviet high command, which meant Stalin and his cronies, were expecting another major German offensive in the spring and summer of 1942. And they thought it would drive on Moscow again, as Operation Barbarossa in 1941 had. It turned out they were partly right. By 1942, the German high command, meaning Hitler really, had decided that uh, the offensive in 1942 would go ahead, but it wasn't going to push on Moscow again. Instead, they were going to push much farther south to the Caucasian oil fields between the Black and Caspian Seas. You see, the idea in 1941 for Operation Barbarossa was a six-week campaign that would achieve quick victory over Moscow. Hitler had said that the communist state was like a house of cards, 
and all you had to do was kick in the front door and the whole rotten structure would come crashing down. So Operation Barbarossa was planned as a six-week campaign. By August 1941, they fully expected to be in Moscow. That's the same thing that had happened earlier in Yugoslavia in 1941, a six-week campaign. In France in 1940, I think it was five weeks before they were in Paris. The thing is, the USSR is 83 times larger than Yugoslavia, and it has a correspondingly larger population and larger army. In 1941, don't forget, the Red Army was the largest military in the world. The problem for the Soviets was that this army was distributed over the largest country in the world. Anyway, back to the Germans. So they did not achieve that goal. They got close by December of 1941. So six months, not six weeks. But the winter, their overstretched supply lines and their heavy losses meant that they had to move to a defensive posture. And one of the things that uh, it turns out, one of their big needs was more fuel oil. Because not only are they traveling great distances, they're actually consuming a lot more oil than even they had planned for. David Stahl, the author of several books on the Eastern Front, and by the way, he just had another book released on uh, Hitler's Panzer Generals in May of 19, sorry, 2023. Um, anyway, he was my guest a few episodes back, and he talked about how he found one of the most surprising things was that the Germans were consuming immense quantities of fuel oil. And the reason for that is that most of the roads in Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, the whole Soviet Union, at this point, were not paved. So there's a lot of dust, and all this dust is getting into the engines of their panzers and other vehicles, and that tends to clog things up and make engines break down. So on the spot, what the panzer commanders would do would be to pour more oil into the engines and try to flush all this, as he put it, gunk out. Short-term solution, not really good for engines. There were a lot of engine breakdowns and they needed a lot more oil. So that was the focus of the summer offensive for Germany. In 1942. On the 5th of April 1942, Hitler issued Directive 41, quote, the winter battle in Russia is nearing its end. Thanks to the unequaled courage and self-sacrificing devotion on the Eastern Front, German arms have achieved a great defensive success, end quote. Yes, he said defensive success. He's got a military operating in another country that they invaded, and that's defensive. Hmm. But in tactical terms, to be fair, the Germans, as I said, had adopted a defensive posture since December 1941. Now, in the winter, uh, you can see in map one on the website for this episode, the Soviets had launched a number of counterattacks, and they had pushed the Germans back 100 kilometers or 60 miles in some places. Uh, less than that in others. But you can see the advances in orange on map one. And they'd also, uh, far to the south in Ukraine, 
pushed a uh, another pocket, created another pocket around Isium or Lozavaya. So this is the situation in um, 19, the summer of 1942. So the Germans have new plans for the summer of 42. Cue the music. Oh, right. I, I don't have the rights to the music from summer of 42. That's all right. It's pretty schmaltzy anyway. So back to Hitler's Directive 41. Quote, In pursuit of the original plan for the Eastern Campaign, the armies of Central Sector will stand fast. Those in the north will capture Leningrad and link up with the Finns, while those on the southern flank will break through into the Caucasus. In view of the conditions prevailing at the end of winter, the availability of troops and resources, and transport problems, these aims can be achieved only one at a time. End quote. That's an interesting shift for, to reality for about a second, uh, because it goes on, First, therefore, all available forces will be concentrated on the main operations in the southern sector, with the aim of destroying the enemy before the dawn, in order to secure the Caucasian oil fields and the passes through the Caucasus Mountains themselves. So, the detachment from reality returns. In short, this less ambitious plan for the summer of 42 is to push the Red Army out of the Don region, out of the Donbass, out of the Caucasian oil fields, and out of the Caucasian passes themselves. This is an additional distance of some 900 kilometers just to get to those oil fields, Grozny, Chechnya, Baku, and so on. The distance from Germany, even if we take that border to be the division point uh, with the of Poland with the Soviet Union from 1941 is another 2,295 kilometers. Imagine adding 2,300 kilometers, roughly 1,600 miles to your supply lines, which are already stretched beyond the breaking point. Doing this would require the Germans to finally clear the enemy out of the Crimean Peninsula, the holdouts in Sevastopol and on the Kerch Peninsula. But just to clarify here, Fall Blau, Case Blue, that operation, is the attack on the ultimate goal, reaching the limits of Europe, according to Nazi mythology, the Volga River and the Archangelsk Ostrakhan line, so a line, an imaginary line drawn roughly from that northern city of Archangel on the White Sea down to Ostrakhan on the Caspian Sea and then across the uh, Caucasus Mountains. Doing this, achieving this would require, as you can imagine, a lot of preparation. The Germans would have to rebuild their forces, bring in a lot more re recruits, a lot more troops to replace to some extent the losses they had suffered from June 1941, bring in more tanks and other armor, lots of trucks and half trucks and so on, and solidifying those supply lines so they're moving more efficiently. Uh, to do this, Hitler prevailed on the Romanians and the Italians to send in uh, more divisions. The Italian Navy, the Regia Marina, sent the 101st Naval Squadron of nine torpedo boats and nine submarines to operate in the Black Sea. Securing uh, the flanks would also require clearing the Red Army out of the Lozovaya pocket. So 
that salient, as you can see in map one, created by the Soviet offensives in January, south of Kharkiv in the Donbass area. This is uh, today called shaping operations, which is talked about a lot in the context of the current Russian war of aggression in Ukraine. Now, before I go much further, as I always do, I want to describe what else is going on in the war in June. So let's zoom out. Last episode, we took our high altitude look at the war up to the end of May 1942 and concluded that the Axis was doing really well in Europe, Africa, the Atlantic, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific. Rommel was pushing the British forces back, getting ever closer to the Suez Canal. German U-boats were operating across the Atlantic, sinking American, Canadian, British, and other Allied shipping at will. The Japanese Imperial Navy won a tactical victory in the Battle of the Coral Sea, sinking the Americans' major aircraft carrier, the Lexington. On June 1st, 1942, Rommel, the Desert Fox, overwhelmed the surrounded British 150th Brigade in North Africa. That same day, June 1st, 1942, the Western Allies first heard of gas being used to kill Jewish people, quote, in the East, end quote. By the 3rd of June, the Americans had to evacuate from Burma, I'll now called Myanmar. And that day, farther east, the Battle of Midway began with American uh, aircraft attacking the Japanese fleet. The day after that, the Japanese attacked the land-based defenses in the island of Midway. After four days of fighting, the Americans had lost over 300 killed, and the Yorktown, an aircraft carrier, was sunk along with a destroyer, the Hammond. They also lost 1,150 planes as well. On their side, the Japanese lost over 3,000 dead, and several ships were sunk, including four fleet carriers and one heavy cruiser. Three other ships were significantly damaged. 248 aircraft were destroyed. The Battle of Midway has been described as the turning point in the war in the Pacific. Uh, 3rd of June was also the day that uh, Reinhard Heydrich, the originator of the so-called final solution to the Jewish question and the brutal dictator of uh, Czechoslovakia, died of the injuries he sustained when his car was bombed by Czechoslovak agents, partisans, who were parachuted in by the British. On the 5th of June, the British 8th Army, surrounded at Gazala, tried to break out with a counterattack. This attempt failed. But Rommel had set up uh, excellent defensive positions, and the Germans used excellent anti-tank tactics. They destroyed 50 of the 70 tanks of the British 32nd Army Tank Brigade. By June 13th, called Black Saturday by the British, Africa Corps did immense damage to the surrounded British army. The uh, British retreated from Gazala toward El Alamein. On the 7th of June, the Japanese attacked Aleutian Islands in the North Pacific. Ten days later, on June 17th, Rommel's forces surrounded Tobruk and captured it in four days, along with 35,000 defending forces. On the 1st of July, the First Battle of El Alamein began with a German attack on the British in Egypt, 
only 106 kilometers or 66 miles from Alexandria. With over 13,000 casualties, the British managed to hold the German advance. In the Atlantic, this was the beginning of a turning point, uh, perhaps in the Battle of the Atlantic. German Grand Admiral Karl Donitz withdrew the U-boats from the eastern seaboard of the U.S. because of their improved convoy system to protect shipping. So, in short, by July, June, July of 1942, the Axis still held the initiative in most of the war. So, now, let's zoom in again on our subject, the Eastern Front. So, as I explained before the overview, in the spring of 1942, the German command was preparing for their summer offensive, Case Blue or Operation Blue, in German, Fall Blau. Now, to prepare for this operation, the Germans had to reinforce their flanks. Today, we call these shaping operations. The idea of these is to put the enemy into a place that is most advantageous for you. Part of this is to give the enemy the false impression about where your main thrust will be, or to keep them guessing so they have to spread out their forces in several directions. In this, the Germans were largely successful. Stalin, and therefore the whole Soviet command structure, were convinced the Germans would renew their drive on Moscow, which makes sense from an operational point of view, unless you know just how bad the German supply situation is. But given the successes up to this point, who would think that the Wehrmacht is anything, anything but unbeatable? So we can think of the operations in May and June of 1942 as part of this preparation of this shaping. But what makes it confusing at first glance when you look at the history is that the Soviets launched their own operations at this time and encountered these German preparations. For example, in Crimea. Now, last episode, we discussed the repeated Soviet attempts to recapture Crimea through the winter of 1942 into the spring. These repeated efforts all failed, with the cost of 352,000 casualties by the end of April, plus half the tanks of the Crimean front. Then in May, the German 11th Army under General and later Field Marshal Eric von Manstein along with Wolfram von Richthofen's 8th Air Corps, launched Operation Bustard Hunt. A bustard is a large game bird related to storks. In five days, they pushed the remnants of the three Red Armies off the Kerch Peninsula, or actually uh, destroyed them. The Soviets suffered another 176,000 casualties. That's men killed, missing, wounded, or captured. They also lost hundreds more tanks, aircraft, and over a thousand guns. This left Sevastopol as the only remaining Soviet toehold on the Crimean Peninsula, which Hitler had described as a land aircraft carrier, a base that threatened the Germans' main oil source, the Ploisty Fields in Romania. Now, outside of, of Crimea, the last episode I described the Battle of the Botovankovo salient. That's that salient you can see in Map 1 and in Map 2. After their winter counter-offensives, the Red Army had penetrated across the North Donetsk River around Izum. Stavka thought they could take advantage of that bridgehead to surround German Army Group South and liberate Kharkiv, 
which was called in Russia Kharkov. But when the Ninth Army attacked on the 12th of May, they ran smack into the Germans' preparation for Case Blue, their next offensive, as I described last episode. There were twice as many German troops and resources as the Soviets expected. The Germans withdrew westward for about a week until the 6th Army and the 1st Panzer Army performed yet another pincer operation surrounding two Red Armies. Another costly failure for the Soviets. In the northern sector around Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, the Soviets also encountered the German buildup in the spring. The Germans' objective, or one of them for 1942 in the north, was to finish taking over Leningrad and link up with the Finns, who were pushing from the northwest and around Lake Ladoga. You can see this all in map 3, which you've seen before if you listen to previous episodes. As it shows, the Germans had reached the southern shore of Lake Ladoga by September 1941. This cut the city off from supplies except over the lake or across the lake, which was very vulnerable to German air attack. Still, encouraged for some reason by their limited success in holding the Germans off of Moscow, pushing them back 60 miles or 100 kilometers in some places, the Soviets set up another operation. I'm going to quote from a book called Slaughter on the Eastern Front by Anthony Tucker Jones. Quote, on 20 April 1942, General K.A. Meretskov, commander of the Volkov Front east of Leningrad, sent his deputy, General Andriy Vlasov, who had distinguished himself with the 20th Army west of Moscow, to take command of the trapped Soviet 2nd Shock Army. He was unable to escape and fell into German hands on 12th July. From 13 May until 10 July, the Soviets lost 94,751 casualties, including 54,774 killed, captured, or missing, most of whom had come from Vlasov's army. End quote. And, after all this, the front did not change appreciably for the people of Leningrad. So, I'm going to zip back down to the south, but before I do that, I have to take a short break. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back. Manstein, the field marshal in charge of the German forces in Crimea, focused on that last Soviet holdout, Sevastopol, or Sevastopol. However, after months of fighting, or close to a year now, going across Ukraine and into the peninsula itself, the 11th Army units were down to as little as 75, as low as 35% of their original strength, depending on the unit. And they had no panzers, no tanks 
for this third assault on Sevastopol. They did have assault guns, 700 artillery pieces, including 65 self-propelled assault guns. These look at first glance like big tanks, but the superstructure where a tank's turret would be does not turn. So they have to sort of turn the whole vehicle to, to aim. In addition, there were 600 aircraft from von Richthofen's 8th Air Corps. The rest had been sent north to that Barvin-Kolvo salient and the push, which I'll describe in a later episode, uh, eastward towards Rostov and then into the Caucasian area. But in the spring of 1942, these 600 aircraft had complete command of the skies over Sevastopol. The Germans also brought in so-called super-heavy artillery pieces, three Karl Garat self-propelled mortars. Now, a few words of explanation are required here. You've probably seen mortars in war movies. It's a simple tube fixed to a base plate. Ammunition is loaded from the muzzle, so dropped into the top. And then it's launched in a high trajectory to explode. It's usually used in a... um, close infantry support. They're typically something a man can carry. In the years between the world wars, the Germans developed a series of super heavy howitzers and mortars. The Karl Garat, which is what they brought into, uh, well, they used it against the Maginot Line in France. They used it in Poland. They used them in Crimea as well. The Karl Garat was a self-propelled siege mortar that weighed 124 tons and fired an explosive shell 60 centimeters, or 24 inches in diameter, and weighing 2,170 kilograms, or 4,780 pounds. Yes, two tons. The the mortar required a 12-cylinder diesel engine to move it, but that was just for aiming it. For transporting this monster over distances, such as to Crimea, it was loaded onto seven rail cars by a mobile crane that was part of it. This crane was also required to load the ammunition, which was carried by modified tanks. The Germans built seven of them, giving each one a different nickname, like Wotan, Thor, Odin, and Loki. Manstein brought three of these monsters to attack Sevastopol in 1942, including Thor and Odin. When they arrived at Sevastopol, or outside Sevastopol, the crews had to excavate 5,000 cubic meters of rock to create their firing positions. Now, as if that wasn't enough, the Germans also brought in Dora, the largest artillery piece ever made. Dora was a rail gun with a caliber of 800 millimeters, or 32 inches in diameter. It was so big, it could only be moved by a train on three sets of tracks. These were laid down on a curve to allow Dora to move to different firing directions. Now, we'll get deep into the third assault on Sevastopol in June 1942 in the next episode. Right now, I want to focus on the German planning for Case Blue, where they think this is all going to go. As I mentioned, the Soviet high command was convinced that the Germans' objectives for the spring and summer of 1942 was a renewed drive toward Moscow. But as we've seen, the Germans, or Hitler's objective, was the Caucasus oil fields, in particular the cities of Grozny and Baku. 
not only would achieving this solve Germans, Germany's oil and fuel supply problem, it would also threaten a major allied asset, the Lend-Lease supply route from Iran over the Caspian Sea and then up the Volga River. One of the secondary objectives of Case Blue, at least in the planning stages, was one of the main way stations of this supply route, the city at the Great Bend of the Volga River where it starts its last run down to the Caspian Sea, a city called, let me check the map, oh yes, Stalingrad. That's right. At first, at least in the spring of 1942, the Germans planned only to threaten Stalingrad, that is, have it in artillery range. They did not at this point planning on conquering or destroying it. But before we go any further on how Case Blue became the Great Battle of Stalingrad, I want to take a look at this Lend-Lease program because it's important. So to understand Lend-Lease, we have to go back just a little bit to the 1930s. After the experience of the First World War, American politics were largely isolationist. The Neutrality Act was legislation designed to keep the United States out of any more European conflicts. Among other things, it forbade American companies from selling war material to any outside country. Of course, there were a lot of exemptions and exceptions, but still the idea was we're not going to supply another belligerent country. But through the 1930s, Germany's threat to world peace became clearer and clearer to the U.S., so, by 1939, U.S. President Roosevelt pushed for what he called the cash-and-carry policy, amending the Neutrality Act to allow warring nations to purchase arms, ammunition, and other military products if they paid cash, which in those days meant gold, and transported the goods themselves. So, the Americans will make the stuff. After that, it's someone else's problem. As Britain and France opened the war against Germany, Roosevelt came up with the idea of Lend-Lease because, well, as they were fighting so much and, and France, well, of course, uh, uh, surrendered, Britain was running out of gold supplies or gold reserves. So Roosevelt came up with the idea of Lend-Lease. Under this idea, they would, the Americans would lend arms, ammunition, and other things to allied nations without charge, with the understanding they'd be returned when hostilities ended unless they were destroyed, of course. The politics around this were complex and loud, and I'll get more deeply into it in a full episode on Lend-Lease. In any way, the Lend-Lease program was uh, intended originally for, of course, Britain and France, until France uh, uh, capitulated. And then in April 1941, the policy was extended to China, and then to the USSR in October, so after four months of, of uh, fighting Germany. By the end of the war, $11 billion worth of Lend-Lease aid, that's in uh, $1945, worth $218 billion in 2021, at who knows how much in 2023 with inflation being what it is right now. Anyway, $11 billion went to the USSR, the second largest recipient of Lend-Lease aid after Britain. This was critical to the USSR's war effort. It included vehicles, food, fuel, railroad engines, cars, metals, so that Soviet factories, which had been built with US expertise and engineers, but that's a story for another podcast. 
Anyway, the Soviet factories, which we have heard have been moved from uh, near Germany, near the front lines, uh, east of the Urals, those factories could concentrate on making weapons, planes, tanks, ammunition, and so on. Even so, even with the Soviets supposedly you know, making their own, stop, own war material, the U.S. sent over 18,000 aircraft, about 30% of the total uh, number of aircraft that the Soviets would have in the war, including fighters and bombers. The Americans also sent 7,000 tanks. Food was critical because the USSR had lost so much of its productive land to the Germans, and so many of its farm workers and young men were now fighting on the front lines, or captured or dead. Speaking of food, my father-in-law had fond memories of American canned ham that he received as a member of the Red Army in 19, well, 1944-45. And we'll get to that in more detail later. In 1941 alone, so in a quarter of the first year of Lend-Lease, the Allies shipped 360,000 tons of aid to the USSR. Most of this came from the US, but also a lot came from Canada and some from Britain as well. Now, there were three routes from the US and other suppliers to the USSR. All of them were risky. The first was the Arctic route, the shortest and most direct also the most dangerous. Ship convoys crossed the Atlantic, went north of Norway into the Arctic Ocean, where they were prey to German U-boats and um, aircraft attack, and it went to the ports of Murmansk and Arkhangelsk. 78 convoys made this trip between August 1941 and May 1945, carrying 3,964,000 tons of food, fuel, weapons, and other supplies. Of this, 7% were lost to German attacks. 93% of the aid sent arrived. This accounted for 23% of the total aid delivered to the USSR. It was delivered by 1,400 merchant ships escorted by Royal Navy, Royal Canadian Navy, and US Navy warships. Of this, 86 merchant ships and 16 Royal Navy warships were lost to German attack. Half of the total amount of uh, Lend-Lease aid to the USSR went by the Pacific route. This is uh, quite long from the U.S. Pacific ports like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle to Vladivostok. Because of the war between Japan and the U.S., and there was no war between the USSR and Japan, the aid was, had to move on Soviet ships. From Vladivostok, uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway carried the goods 5,000 miles or 8,000 kilometers to the uh, Soviet industrial heartland. The longest and the only all-weather route was the Persian route, so-called Persian route, through Iran to the Caspian Sea, and then across the Caspian to the Volga River. Now, this was not operational until mid-1942 because the Iranian-slash-Persian monarch, uh, Reza Shah, was officially neutral in the war, and he refused pressure to cut off ties with Germany and come down firmly on the Allied side. So, 
In August 1941, Britain and the USSR invaded Iran, arrested the Shah, and sent him into exile. This allowed the British and Russians to control the rail lines from the Persian Gulf to the Caspian Sea. Now, as you can imagine, the ripple effects of this coup continued for decades. But that's a topic for another podcast. So, this route, the longest, uh, brought in 27% of the total aid to the USSR in Lend-Lease, a total of 4,160,000 tons. So here we are. I think this is a good place to close this episode of Beyond Barbarossa, like the Germans did in 1942. I've set the stage for the coming summer. Come back in two weeks for the beginning of Case Blue, the final assault on Sevastopol. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please see the maps and photos on the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You'll have to scroll down a bit to uh, find the latest episode because they're going up or they appear on those sites in chronological order. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. Thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors or if you have any comments or questions or just want to weigh in on something, please don't hesitate. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina.